Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Hey, good morning. I hope you all are enjoying the, uh, the weather this morning. I really am. It's nice. It was like 40-something degrees when I left my house this morning, which was exciting for me because this time of year, growing up in the valley, this time of year almost feels like um, we're holding on by a thread over this pool of fire that's about to engulf us that we know as the summer in the valley. And so um, I feel like we're hanging on by a thread or a fingernail. I saw like it, you know, I think we hit 80 degrees last week, which is scary started to scare me, and so it's nice to see this storm come through, give us some lower temperatures throughout the week. So hopefully you're celebrating that, even though it was a little bit chilly, unseasonably cold, I think, this morning for us, but uh, hopefully you're enjoying that this morning. But it's great to see all of you here this morning. Um, Welcome to week six of our current series, where we're going through the Old Testament book of Hosea. If you don't know, Hosea was an 8th century B.C. prophet. He was an Israelite prophet that spoke God's words to God's people, so God's words to Israel back in the 8th century B.C. And one of the things that we've been discovering throughout this entire series is that one of the main themes of the book of Hosea is God's love. And that's why we've called this series The One Thing, because this is the one thing that is central about this book, God's love. And then as we think about what it means to understand all the facets of God's love, that understanding God's love is the one most important thing that we need to know. It changes our lives, changes everything about our perspective and our understanding of who God is and our relationship with Him. It changes even who we believe ourselves to be as human beings. And uh, if you missed last week, let me tell you, you missed something. Um, I'm not sure what it was. I'm still trying to figure out what it was. Uh, But it was something, I'll tell you that. Um, (laughs) If you weren't here, of course, last week we talked about uh, politics um, from the book of Hosea as we kind of approached that. And so... Um, If you're interested in that kind of thing, which I know it's uh, something that some people are interested at this time of year, it's kind of a big deal um, this year where we're at, and so um, if you're interested in that kind of thing, you can find it online or you can listen to the podcast if you missed last week. Um, But really, we we started talking about that because the book of Hosea led us there, so we went there. Um, Speaking of last week, uh, I do want to say thank you to all those who have been encouraging, encouraging me over this past week in response to that message. Uh, I've been really appreciating hearing uh, from you, your emails, and that kind of thing. And so for those of you I know who didn't appreciate the message as much, I look forward to hearing from you in the next couple of weeks, because that's kind of how this thing works. It takes a little bit of time. Those people who love it, they tell you right away. The people who didn't appreciate it as much, they tend to wait a little bit, uh, either to kind of figure things out and figure out where they're at, which is healthy, or it's just kind of the, how long it takes to get back to me second or third hand. So I'll be looking forward to, to that the next couple of weeks. Um, if you want to send me an email and encourage me, send me an email. I appreciate that. If you have an email to tell me how much you didn't maybe appreciate something, you can send those emails to Sharon Smith in our office. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But seriously, speaking, seriously, um, no matter how you felt about the content of the message last week and the conclusions that I drew, I think the bigger point is this. I believe personally that the Bible has real things to say about real issues in our world that we face. Right, God creates us, he gives us his word, he puts us in this world that he has created so that his word speaks to real things that happen to our lives in real ways. So yes, certainly God's word speaks to things like politics and like sex and like money and on and on and on. You name it. 
The Bible provides for us a biblical framework for processing these things. Now, the Bible doesn't address every single issue clearly in, in clear terms, in direct terms, in the way that we might sometimes want it to. In fact, it would make my job a lot easier. I sometimes wish that that were the case. But the Bible does provide us with a clear framework to process and to engage in the world around us. God has given us his word for that purpose. And so, of course, one of the reasons that we go through a book like Hosea is that as we go through it from beginning to end, we start to face things that may, we might not otherwise engage with. Right? One of the beautiful struggles about going through a biblical book from beginning to end is that you can't avoid the topics as they come up. You just kind of have to go through them and deal with them. And as you do, you talk about this, and as you do, you talk about it honestly, and you try to process as much as you can and understand a biblical perspective so that you can engage in the world that God has placed us in to make an impact. And certainly that's been happening through the book of Hosea. And then as we pray and we commune with God, each of us together, we can better live in a way, as we talked about last week, which is really the main point, in a way that loves God and in a way that loves our neighbor and loves the world around us. And so last week we talked about the politics of the kingdom of God as being expressed through loving God and loving our neighbor. And that was the gist of the message. So now that you've heard that, you don't need to listen to the podcast anymore. That was basically it. But there are people who would say, you know, in the end, like, keep politics out of church, we're not supposed to talk about those things, but I would disagree. I think what God wants us to do is engage these things in a way because what he recognizes is that as we engage these things, they are designed for us to impact the world around us, but also those things that we engage in impact and form our hearts. And that's true about any activity that we engage in, anything that we do on a daily basis. The things that we choose to engage in actually have a way of forming us at a deeper level. You know this if you've ever experienced anything significant in your life that you can look back over your life and say, yeah, that was a defining moment in my life. And it was likely defining because not only may it have moved you emotionally or moved your life in a certain direction, but it probably also impacted you in some way spiritually because those things leave a mark on our lives. And whether it was if you're married, when you got married, if you have kids, when you had kids, or when you bought your first house, maybe when you bought your first car, or when you got that job that you were really, really wanting to get and you finally got it, or whether it's a time of struggle that you've gone through in your life, either relationally or medically, physically, you know that those things don't just affect you physically, they affect you emotionally and they leave a mark on you spiritually at the very depth of who you are. And I say that this morning because as we get into chapters 9 and 10 of the book of Hosea, we're going to see that as we are kind of now three-quarters of the way through this book. Uh, it has become clear that God is addressing Israel as people who have continually wandered from him. And he's pointing out that the things and the decisions that you have chosen to make come from a place that have now defined where you are, and as you continue to engage in those things, they have formed your heart to be at this place now where you are far away from me. And really, as we've discovered through the book of Hosea, and really, I mean, in chapter 1, when you open up the book and God starts calling Israel whores over and over again, you kind of get the direction of where this is going. Like, this is not in a good place from the very beginning. But now, especially that we get to chapters 9 and 10, we see how far Israel has wandered. And I think one of the things that we see is over and over again, as God continues to appeal to them, God's patience and his love as he appeals to them. Look, you've wandered from me, but I love you, and I'm calling you back. And let me tell you, by the way, if you continue on this pace, if you continue where you're going, this is where you're going to end up. It's going to destroy you. And I say that 
and I cause a, and I, and I, to cause us to remember that God is saying these words that we're about to read out of love. I feel like I have to do this little disclaimer every time we begin to read through, because you're going to see some language in here that might be a little harsh and might be a little brutal, and what we have to keep in mind is the context of where these words come from and the goal to which God is driving all of this. So with that being said, let's look at Hosea chapter 9. This is where we left off last week, starting in verse 10. We're going to continue through chapter 10 this morning. But it says this in verse 10. Words, uh, words are on the screen behind me. You can also, of course, follow on your device or in your Bible. It says this in Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. This is God talking through the prophet Hosea. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor, and I, conse- and I consecrated them and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. For evil of theirs is in Gilgal, well, they were, there I began to hate them. Because of their wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up, and they shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Starting in verse 10, which is where we started uh, this morning, you see really a headline, and, and we've engaged this throughout the book of Hosea, but the book of Hosea is written primarily in poetic form. And what typically happens with ancient Hebrew uh, poetry, which is what this is written in, is that you will typically get a headline for here is what the rest of this is supposed to be about. So you get like a subject line or a title line, and then everything that comes after it fleshes out that idea through metaphoric language and through poetry. And in this case, in verse 10, we get that direction for us, told to us from the very beginning. It says like this, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. What God is saying is he's using this metaphor in two ways. He's saying essentially like grapes that are growing in the middle of the desert or figs that just sprout out in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the wilderness, which was a miraculous event, by the way. We know a little bit of this because we live in a desert climate, and, and, and although grapes and figs aren't necessarily something that, you know, are that, all that special to us, in the ancient world, especially in ancient Israel, grapes and figs were significant of fruitfulness, were very valuable. And one thing they understood is that the wilderness and the desert doesn't just produce these things on its own. In fact, it would be quite a miraculous thing to see this happen in the middle of the desert. If you were walking by and you saw a fig tree just sprout out out of nowhere, you would wonder exactly who put it there because it shouldn't be surviving there. But God says to them, like, like a fig tree, in the middle of the wilderness, I pulled you out and made you who you are. And of course, he's referring back to the time of the Exodus. When Israel was a slave people, when they were not a nation, when they were not a people, God plucked them out of the desert, brought them through the wilderness to himself, made them a nation, gave them a land, and said, not only are you a people, but you are my people. And at the same time, the metaphor works on another level, is that not only did he establish them as a nation, but he gave them spiritual life and spiritual vitality. 
When you were dead spiritually, I gave you spiritual life. Now, before that verse is even finished, though, we see how quickly this turns. God refers to an incident at, known as the Baal Peor incident, which is when some of the Israelite men, generations before Hosea, generations before this time, actually during the Exodus, were seduced by Moabite women, which caused them to participate in the worship of cultic gods through kind of sexual rites. And so in other words, they were seduced by these women, originally sexually, and then they started engaging in all of this idolatry that had to do with kind of sexual cultic worship as a part of the worship process. Yeah, you. It's kind of nasty. And so God points to that and says, look, and the reason that he points to that event is he says, look, from the very beginning, this is who you have been, and in the very same way, just like your ancestors did, this is where you are at again with me. And he does that to call them back and say, look, originally I designed you to bear fruit, but in reality, as a result of your disobedience and your wandering from me, you're not producing fruit. In fact, you're producing fruit of a different kind. And as we're going to get to next chapter, this fruit that God calls the fruit of wickedness. And so he says to them, as a result, Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird in verse 11. Of course, what is Ephraim's glory? What is Ephraim's strength? It is God himself. And God says, look, when I leave you, when my presence leaves you, all of this will now happen. Your, fruitful, your fruitfulness will turn to fruitlessness. And we get all these metaphors about no birth, no pregnancy, no, con no conception, children, miscarrying, children being slaughtered. I mean, it is brutal in this. One thing to remember, though, of course, is that these are metaphors that God is using. Children represents fruit. And then at the same time, the reason these metaphors are so shocking and uncomfortable is because they're designed to be that way. God is trying to wake Israel up. These words throughout this have been shocking and uncomfortable to try to get Israel's attention to shock them back to reality so that they would see exactly how far that they've fallen. And so all these, these things are disturbing. They're meant to be that way. And in the end, God has a purpose in it. And we turn to chapter 10 to see his continuation of this. In verse 1, he says this, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit, and the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved the pillars, and their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words, with empty oaths they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds and in the furrows of the field. And the inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of beth Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, for those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. Now the thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol." Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. And the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. From the days of Gubeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gebeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and the nations shall be gathered against them, when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke, 
and Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself, and sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, and you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and the multitude of your warriors. Therefore the tumult of war shall rise among your people, and your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel in the day of the battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At, the dawn, at dawn the king of Israel shall utterly be cut off. Now, continuing the metaphors of fruit and fruitfulness, God starts this chapter in verse 1 by saying, Look, Israel, I established you as a luxuriant vine. Luxuriant vine is a vine that's full of branches, but, a, but branches, of, of course, imply fertility, that there was fruit all over those branches, and God says, This is how I've designed you to be. But you have used that fruit to build your own altars, to build your own pillars to other gods and to worship them. So what I have given you, what I have set you apart from, from the very beginning, the land, who I have made you, and who I have made you spiritually, you have them turned around and used that fruit to worship other gods. And so as this plays out then throughout the chapter, God begins to tell them exactly how this happened and why it's happened. It's obvious from your fruit that this, in other words, is where your heart has been. Look in verse 2. He says, this is what has happened. This is the source of it all. As the heading really for this chapter, their heart is false, and now they must bear their guilt. What is the source of how this fruit has come to be? How the fruitlessness or the fruit of wickedness has come out of? It's, God identifies it. It's your heart. It's where your heart has been, and it's what your heart has directed you to do. And then as a result of their hearts being in this place, they make the statement, we have no king, which is saying God is not our king. I don't know, as I read this, it reminded me of the incident where, of the scene where Jesus is there with Pilate before he's crucified, he's being tried, and the religious leaders say, we have no king but Caesar. The, the language here, and for whatever it's worth, I don't know if we have time to go into that this morning, but for whatever it's worth, that language is very similar here, and I think there's a deliberate connection. But we have no king. Throwing off the kingly rule of God and saying essentially, our kings are Assyria, our kings are Egypt, our kings are ourselves. And what, may, what God makes clear over the next few verses is that judgment is coming. Israel, it may look like your altars and your pillars are built well now, but just know that one day, one day soon, judgment is coming. Those altars and those pillars will be destroyed and cast down and filled with thorns and thistles, which is a biblical image of sin and brokenness and all the rest and cursing. And then switching to the animal metaphor, God uses this metaphor of a heifer that was supposed to be trained to plow the fields. He says, Israel, much like the heifer who's trained to plow the field so that crops will come, I've trained you and I've put you in this place so that you would bear fruit for me, that would be glorifying to me, and for the rest of the world. But like a wild heifer, you've ran off on your own and you've instead, instead of crops to be planted and instead of crops to grow, instead of life to come out, and instead of you to be a blessing to the other nations, you have become people who have borne fruit of wickedness. Now, by the time we get to the end of chapter 10, then, we see this full circle kind of come back to the middle of chapter 9 where we began, which is this heading of the, the, the question of fruit and where it comes from and how the heart itself produces 
fruit for good and for bad. I think since the beginning of our series, we've been talking about God's love, and after reading words like this, especially that have to do with the slaughter of children and all these other things, it's hard sometimes to remind ourselves again, what God is doing here is actually loving. But what he's doing, and what we really need to see that God is doing here, is helping the Israelites understand that this is the situation you're in, this is how you've gotten yourself in that situation, and if you continue on this trajectory, this is where it's going to result. And God doesn't mince words in this, and he makes it uncomfortable, and he makes it difficult because it's supposed to open their eyes and shock them out of where they have been and where they are going. Have you ever wondered why you do what you do sometimes? I've wondered that, if I'm honest, and it usually has to do with when I do something stupid or sinful. And my immediate reaction, I don't know about yours, my immediate reaction is usually to say, uh, that's not me, Right? I don't believe that way. I'm better than that. Why am I doing this? Why am I saying this? The funny thing about that is when I do good things, I don't have any problem taking credit for those things, right? It's like, yeah, that's, that's me. That's exactly who I am. But then I read something like what's in James chapter 1, and it says this, and it humbles me. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know, through James, similar to what God does in Hosea, he is telling us how sin happens. Because we, we look at certain situations and, you know, we fall into sin and we ask ourselves, now, why am I being tempted? And James kind of anticipates that. And he says, yeah, you may ask, why are you being tempted and how that temptation led you to sin? But in reality, it's, first of all, it's not God. God didn't tempt you to do that because God's not tempted by evil and he tempts no one. And so we might say, well, Satan, you know, Satan, he, the devil made me do it. And while that's certainly true, while Satan puts temptation in our path, what this says in James is that the reason that we are tempted is not anything outside. It is, see it there, lured and enticed by his own desire. Another word for desire in the Bible is heart. And so the, really the pattern that James gives us here is that desire or our own hearts lead us to temptation, which then leads to sin as we fall into that temptation. And I know that's not a popular way to talk about sin. I mean, it's not popular to talk about sin in any way. But certainly in the culture that we live in, in a victimization culture where everything that has happened to me and where I'm at has to do with somebody victimizing me from the outside, this is a very unpopular way to address this. That look, my sin and the reason that I do what I do is that it comes from my own heart. Yet that's what the Bible says. And look, I think that when this becomes confusing for us is when we believe something and then we act differently than what we believe. As I said before, like, this isn't me. I don't believe this. Why, Why do I end up acting this way? And so sometimes what happens is we end up questioning what we believe because it's like, well, if this isn't helping me live this the way that I want to live, then does the belief itself actually have any truth to it. I think we have to separate belief from, or faith from action, from how we live, because there's a difference between faith and action. We can believe all the right things, but if our hearts and if our desires aren't formed correctly, our actions won't be changed because our actions come from our desires, the things that we truly love. For instance, you might believe that gossip and slander are wrong, as you should. If you're a Bible-believing Christian, the Bible says repeatedly, Gossip and slander is sinful. Don't do it. And you might be able to say why it's wrong. 
It's wrong because it hurts people. It's wrong because, um, you know, it, it slanders people's reputations. It's wrong because if somebody hears me slander another person, they might be tempted not to love that person the way that they should. It fractures relationships. I mean, we could go on and on about the things that gossip and slander do to the relationships around us. You might even be able to, you might go through a Bible study on all the places that gossip and slander is talked about in the Bible. You might pray that God would deliver you from the temptation to gossip and slander. You might even be able to teach on it. And in the end, the first off, sometimes the first opportunity you have to do it, you fall for it. You call it a prayer request, but in the end it's just gossip, right? And then on the other side of that sin, you ask, why did I do that? And I, I think probably the more disturbing thing is, why did I enjoy doing that so much while I was doing it? That one hurts, right? The Bible says because somewhere along the line, your heart was formed for it. And you did it because you desired to do it. It was an expression of what you loved in that moment. And just like in the book of Hosea where God says, look, the lovers that you have gone to have caused you to do this. He's pointing out, look, the source of this issue is what you love and what you desire. And that has caused the fruit which you then see as sin. Which is scary because if you look at those verses again from James, what we see is one more thing as we continue that pattern. Desire leads to temptation. Sin leads to more sin. And then more sin leads to death, spiritual death, souls being destroyed. So clearly in order for us to be changed, our hearts must be changed. But the problem is, is that the human heart is deceitful above all things, as Scripture says. So our hearts even within us have the capacity to deceive us. Why is that? I think we can learn a little bit about from brain science about how this happens. In other words, you may know this, but the activities that you engage in, especially if you engage in some kind of addictive activity like using drugs or pornography, actually have a way of changing the chemicals in your brain and actually rerouting neural pathways in your brain so that your brain begins to actually change its composition based on how you engage in these activities. And it's difficult, and, and so eventually, that's what can lead to addiction, and eventually you don't know how to operate, your brain doesn't know how to operate without the thing that you have trained it to operate with, whether it's a substance or whether it's an activity or experience. And as difficult as that is to change, there are people all the time with the right treatment, people overcome addiction all the time. But what this is telling us is that the heart itself gets formed, and it is even more difficult than that to change. In fact, it's impossible for us to overcome on our own. So what hope do we have? The only, one, the only one who can change our hearts is the one who has designed our hearts. The only one who can change our hearts is the one who is not deceived by our hearts, and that's God himself. And it's the desire, it's where that desire leads that matters. Theologian Michael Reeves, I think it's Reeves, it says, looks like Reeves, but he's British, so I think it's Reeves, but he says this, this is what happens when we sin. Look, lovers we remain. In other words, we were made to love things. So we remain lovers even as we are sinning, but lovers we remain, but twisted, our love misdirected and perverted. Created to love God, we turn to love ourselves and anything but God. And this is just what we see in the original sin of Adam and Eve. Eve takes and eats the forbidden fruit because of a love for herself that has become, or that has overcome any love that she might have had for God. Now, look, God doesn't call out sin just to shame us. 
God calls out sin in our lives so that we would know the deeper problem, that the deeper need that we have is for our hearts to be changed and that we need to come to him for that to happen. He does it so that we can completely be changed by the right things, to love in a way that we were created to love. And because he loves us, he knows that those twisted desires will ultimately destroy us. He made our hearts and he knows how they're supposed to function. They're supposed to function in a way that loves him and loves the things that he loves. And anything other than that will lead to constant brokenness, producing thorns and thistles in our lives. And they may not be apparent in your lives. You might have the altars and the pillars set up right now and they look beautiful. But eventually you'll get to that place where the thorns and the thistles start to grow and that thing begins to shatter and crumble. And so the substance of God's love is a complete and whole solution to our sin issue. And it's God's complete salvation. You may have heard the phrase, God loves us right where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. In other words, no matter where you're at, God loves you. But he doesn't, but he doesn't just leave you where you're at in your sin. His plan in salvation is to change you. And this is a reference to the wholeness of God's salvation. I'm going to give you three quick theological words that speak to very important things about what God does. It's the wholeness of his salvation. The first one is justification. This is what happens when we first come to faith in Christ, that we are justified by faith. It means that God saves us from the guilt of our sin. Sanctification or spiritual growth or growth in holiness, it goes by a lot of names, is essentially God saving us from the power of our sin. It's what it looks like for us to grow spiritually in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit once we've been born again after justification. And then finally, glorification is the one we look forward to. God saves us from the presence of sin. Look, this is all by God's grace through the power of Jesus, but as you look at this, God has a plan. He doesn't just say, here's your sin, deal with it, figure it out. He says, look, I've provided a solution for this, wholly and completely. And the more that we grow in sanctification, it begins to look like new life in us. It looks like fruit. It is substance. Galatians 5, 20, or 19 through 24 flushes this out for us well. As we close out, I want to focus on this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Simply enough, there are two types of fruit. And as you look at your life, you can see that fruit hopefully demonstrated around you. There's fruit of the flesh, as this might be called, or fruit of myself. And then there's fruit of the Spirit of God changing me and living out new life. And fruit is unmistakable. No matter what you say, fruit is unmistakable. I have some citrus trees in my backyard, and we moved in in August uh, to our house. And so in August, like, citrus trees at that point are not putting out fruit. They're just, like, trying to survive just like the rest of us. And uh, so they all look the same. You know this if you have citrus trees. But I knew we kind of had maybe a mixture of trees back there. And if I walked up to one of those citrus trees in August and, and, and asked that tree what it was, and the tree started talking to me and said, I am an orange tree, right? which talking trees may seem weird, but I live in Fountain Hills, and trust me, that's not the weirdest thing I've seen out there, talking citrus trees. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. We love living out there. It's great. Um, beautiful place. 
But if that tree were to say to me, I'm an orange tree, and then come this time of year when they're starting to put out uh, kind of the, the fruit and we can see that it puts out lemons, doesn't matter what that orange tree tells me, it's a lemon tree. This is what this is telling us. Look, the fruit that comes out of us is unmistakable. It marks who we are. It marks exactly where our hearts are. And so the bottom line for us is what does the fruit of our lives look like? Let me leave you as we close this morning with a few guiding principles on the issue of fruit. First of all, we all bear fruit. Again, as Galatians tells us, as human beings, God has designed us to bear fruit. God's designed us to make an impact in the world around us. He's created us for this creation, placed us here so that we would work and keep the creation. And as we do, we put out fruit for good or for bad. The things that we say, the things that we do, it impacts the world around us. The question is, what does that fruit look like? Because it's happening all the time. You can't, I mean, I guess you technically could not produce fruit. I don't know if that's possible. But if you're living and you're doing things, fruit is going to come. So what does that look like? We all bear fruit. Secondly, that fruit matters. More than just being evidence of where our hearts are at, when we see fruit, the fruit that we have around us is actually designed to be a gift to give out to the world. That it impacts the world, it impacts relationships and people around us. In the Old Testament, we talked about the fact that God gave Israel the law so that as they lived that out, they would represent his character to the rest of the nations. In the New Testament, as believers, we don't have the law written on tablets of stone. We have the law written on our hearts by the Spirit. The very person of the Holy Spirit lives within us. So as we live that out, we represent the fruit of the character of Jesus Christ, which is the fruit of the Spirit that we just looked at. Third, true fruit of the Spirit comes from a changed heart. You know, what typically begins, when you, when you see a list like this in Galatians, I think our typical reaction is to say, okay, these are all really good things. Like, I want to live with the fruit of the Spirit in my life. So love, joy, peace. I want to be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful. I need to be more gentle. I need to have more self-control in my life. And our immediate reaction is to dive into those and say, I need to be those things a little bit more. I need to work on those things a little bit more in my life. And certainly, there's a process through which we work this. But in the end, the only thing that gives us real substance is if God changes the source of those things, changes the substance of those things, changes our heart. You know, we, uh, at home, we have this bunch of bananas that we picked up from Costco this past week. And if you ever bought bananas um, at Costco, you know that they, like, tape the whole thing around, and they make it this big bunch of, like, 30 bananas or whatever it is. And so it's really hard to, like, when you pick it up, like, at a normal grocery store, you can feel the bananas, and you can feel the firmness. But with this, you just kind of, like, take it or leave it, right? It's just a big glob of bananas. And so I went to grab one of these bananas the other day, and uh, it looked great. I mean, on the outside, really all you have to evaluate is like what it looks like, like on the outside. So it's yellow, and it's got a little bit of green. Like if you're a real banana eater, you know that you buy them when they're a little bit green so that over the next couple of days they just ripen. And, uh, and I like my bananas a little bit more, you know, little bit, little bit, with a little bit more firmness anyway. And so when I went to go grab a banana, I was like, damn, that looks like a really good one. It's green, still a little green and yellow. And I went to grab it, and I pulled it off the, the stalk of bananas. Is that what it is? A bunch of bananas? I don't know exactly what you call that. But I pulled it off, and it was like mush in my hand. It was one of those things where you couldn't see the bruises on the outside of the peel, but it's completely bruised on the inside. So I threw that one away, and I grabbed another one. And this one felt a little bit better until I peeled back the peel, and there was a bruise all the way down the back of it. And I don't, I mean, some of you guys, I guess, like to eat bruised bananas. For me, there's nothing worse than eating a bruised banana. Yeah, thank you. It's the first amen I got all day. I appreciate that. <laughs> but 
The point is this, is that the peel can look like whatever the peel looks like, and we can sometimes make the peel look fantastic. But on the inside, the only thing that gives us substance is whether or not our hearts have been changed. And then in the end, I think this is the one that we can engage that might be the most important of the four. What we worship, we become. And I guess I ask this question, why do you follow Jesus? If you're, if you're a Christ follower, why do you follow Jesus? If you consider yourself to be a Christian, why are you a Christian? You ever ask yourself that question? I ask myself that all the time, all the time. Why is it that I'm following Jesus? Is Jesus himself satisfying in and of himself to you? Or do you follow Jesus because you just want something else in reality? Because if Jesus is not enough, when he's just something that we use or someone we use to get something else, we've actually made him a functional idol in our lives. Because the thing that we actually love is the thing that is beyond Jesus. That's what we actually love. That's what we actually worship. And look, there's a clear pattern all through the book of Hosea, even here, is that what you love is what you worship, what you celebrate, and what you worship is what you become. And look, God shows his love for us, I think, not all the time in ways, I'm realizing this even more and more as I'm reading through this book again, is that God doesn't always show his love in a way that we would want him to show his love to us. We can't prescribe necessarily how God loves us. We just have to trust that in the midst of it, he is loving us, though in a way that is wise and in a way that is for our good. But in everything that he is doing in our lives, he is loving us. Because he knows how he has made us, and he knows our hearts because he made them. I want to invite the band to come, come up as we respond this morning. And here's the response that we have for you. It's fortunate that we still have those bulletins with the folding thing, right? Because now we have folders still. For the last couple of weeks, we're going to use that. And this morning, as you walked in, if you had one of those folders, inside that folder, there's a piece of paper that says God is on it. This is simply what we want you to do. This is a, this is a response of, uh, of a couple of these that we just talked about. What we worship, we become. This is an aspect of worshiping God. And also, the fruit that we bear matters. And so this is what we want to encourage you to do. But this morning, during our response time, just Write simply either a word or a phrase that comes to mind as you think about God, one thing you appreciate about who God is. And then once you're done writing on that piece of paper, I want to ask you to give it to somebody else. Give your piece of paper that has what you appreciate about God to somebody else, representing that the fruit that we bear is actually given as a gift to other people in our lives as well as it being something that brings glory to God. And as you do that, exchange with somebody else. And so the idea is that nobody walks out of here this morning with the paper that they wrote on, they walk out with somebody else's. And this is a response of worship. It is a way of saying, Lord, this is what I cherish about who you are. And this is the opportunity and blessing, mirroring the opportunity and blessing that we have to, to be worshipers who present God's character to others. So as we do that, that's, that's our call to response this morning as we continue in worship in the band leaders. In just a moment, We'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Lord, that's truly our prayer this morning. Lord Jesus, bring new wine out of us. We pray, Father, that you are the one who knows our hearts. You are the one who searches our hearts. You do it for our good. 
So many times we are deceived and blind to, Lord, the, the path that we're walking. You see the path a hundred steps ahead of where we're going. Sometimes we can't even see the step in front of us that we're about to take. And so, Lord, I ask for faith this morning, that you would gift us with faith so that we can trust you to order our steps, and Lord, to be the one who is the lover of our hearts. The reason you change us, the reason you call us to bring our hearts to you is because you love our hearts. You've created them for a purpose, Lord. You've created each one of us so that we might live out fruit in this world for your glory, for our enjoyment, and for the blessing of the world. We pray that, Lord, as we continue this week, you would continually teach us that. Remind us by your Spirit that you have designed us to be people who are full of the character of Jesus, that everywhere we go, the world would see him by the way that we live, by what we say and what we do. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. All right, guys, have a great week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.